0: Chapter 12. Christmas came down and covered the land in snow, up to the edge of the lake. One of the coldest Christmases for many years, enjoyed by dogs and children and skiers, but I didn't belong to any of those categories. My office was very warmly heated, but the garden outside looked blue through the tinted glass and chilled me all the same. I felt much too old for my job, to deal with chocolates all the time, milk and plain, almond, and hazel, seemed work more suitable to a younger man or a girl. I was surprised when one of my chiefs opened the door of my office and let in Mr. Kipps. It was as if a cartoon had come to life. Bent almost double, Mr. Kipps advanced his hand held out as though it was in search of that lost dollar rather than in welcome. My colleague said, in a tone of respect I was unaccustomed to hear, I believe you have met Mr. Kipps yes, I said, at Dr. Fisher's. I didn't know that you knew Dr. Fisher. Mr. Jones is married to his daughter, Mr. Kipps said. I thought I saw a look of fear on the face of my chief. I had been up till now far beneath his notice, and suddenly I represented a danger. For a son-in-law of Dr. Fisher's, might he not, with that influence behind him, find a place on the board? Unwisely, I couldn't help teasing him a little. Dentifil Bouquet, I said. Tries to undo the damage we do in this building to the teeth. It was a very rash remark. It could be classified as disloyalty. Big business, like a secret service, demands loyalty from its employees more than honesty. Mr. Kipps, my chief said, is a friend of the managing director. He has a little problem of translation, and the managing director would like you to help him. A letter I wish to send to Ankara, Mr. Kipps said. I want to attach a copy in Turkish to prevent misunderstanding. I will leave you together, my chief said, and when the door closed, Mr. Kipps told me, this is confidential, of course. I can see that. Indeed, I had seen it at the very, very first glance. There were references to Prague and Skoda, and Skoda to all the world means armaments. Switzerland is a land of strangely knotted business affiliations. A great deal of political as well as financial laundering goes on in that little harmless neutral state. The technical terms, which had to be translated, were all connected, I could see, with weapons. For a short while, I was in a world far removed from chocolates. Apparently, there was a firm called ICFC, Inc., which was American, and it was purchasing weapons on behalf of a Turkish company from Czechoslovakia. The final destination of the weapons, all small arms, was very unclear. A name which sounded as if it might be Palestinian or Iranian was somehow involved. My Turkish is more rusty than my Spanish because I have less practice. We don't do much business with the land of Turkish delight. And the letter took me quite a long while to translate. I will get a fair copy typed, I told Mr. Kipps. "'I would rather you did it yourself,' Mr. Kipps said. "'The secretary can't read Turkish. All the same.' "'When I had finished typing,' Mr. Kipps said, "'I realize you have done this in office time, "'but all the same, perhaps a little present. "'Quite unnecessary. "'Might I perhaps send a box of chocolates to your wife? "'Perhaps liqueur chocolates?' "'Oh, but you know, Mr. Kipps, "'in this business we are never short of chocolates.' "'Mr. Kipps still bent nearly double,' so that his nose approached the desk as though he were trying to find the elusive dollar by the smell, folded the letter in the original, and tucked them away in his note-case. He said, "'When we meet at Dr. Fisher's, you won't, of course, mention this affair is most confidential. "'I don't think we'll ever meet there again. "'But why?' At this season of the year, if the weather is fine, and never mind the snow, he usually gives the most magnificent party of all the year. Soon, I expect, we shall be getting our invitations. I've seen one party, and that's enough for me. I must admit that the last party was perhaps a little crude. All the same, it will go down in the memory of his friends as the porridge party. The lobster party was a good deal more entertaining, but then you never know what to expect with Dr. Fisher. There was the quail party, which rather upset Madame Favignon, he, saw, he sighed. She was very attached to birds. You can't please everybody, but I suppose his presence always do. Please, I mean. He's very, very generous. Mr. Kipps began to make his bent pin way to the door. It was as though the gray moquette were a map printed with the route which he had to follow. I called after him. I met an old employee of yours. He works in the music shop called Steiner. He said, I don't remember the name, and continued without pausing along the route which he had traced for him on the moquette. That night I told Anna Louise of my encounter. You can't get away from them, she said. First poor Steiner and then Mr. Kipps. Mr. Kipps's business had nothing to do with your father. In fact, he asked me not to mention our meeting if I saw your father. And you promised? Of course. I don't intend ever to see him again. But now they've attached you to him by a secret, haven't they? They don't intend to let you go. They want you to be one of them. Otherwise, they won't feel safe. Safe? Safe from being laughed at by someone on the outside. Well, the fear of being laughed at... Doesn't seem to deter them much. I know. Greed wins every time. I wonder what the quail party can have been that so upset Madame Favignon. Something beastly. You can be sure of that. The snow continued to fall. It was going to be a very white Christmas. There were blocks even on the auto route. And Cointrin Airport was closed for 24 hours. It mattered nothing to us. It was the first Christmas we had ever had together, and we celebrated it like children with all the trimmings. Anna Louise bought a tree, and we laid our presents for each other at its foot, gift wrapped in the shops with gay paper and ribbons. I felt more like a father than a lover or a husband. That didn't worry me. A father dies first. On the eve of Christmas, the snow stopped, and we went to the old abbey at St. Maurice for midnight mass and listened to that still more ancient story of the Emperor Augustus' personal decree, and how all the world came to be taxed. We were neither of us Roman Catholics, but this was the universal feast of childhood. It seemed quite suitable to see Beaumont there, listening carefully to the decree of the Emperor all by himself, as he had been at our wedding, Perhaps the Holy Family should have taken his advice and somehow evaded registration at Bethlehem. He was waiting at the door when we came out, and we couldn't avoid him. Dark suit, dark tie, dark hair, thin body and thin lips, and an unconvincing smile. "'Merry Christmas,' he said, winking at us, and pressed an envelope into my hand like a tax demand. I could tell from the feel that it contained a card. "'I don't trust the post,' he said at Christmas. He waved his hand. There's Mrs. Montgomery. I felt sure she would be here. She's very ecumenable. Mrs. Montgomery wore a pale blue scarf over her pale blue hair, and I could see the new emerald in the hollow of her scrawny throat. Ha, ha, Monsieur Belmont, and his cards as usual, and the young couple, a very happy Christmas to you all. I didn't see the general in church, I hope he's not ill. Ah, there he is. Yes, there the divisionaire certainly was, framed in the church doorway like a portrait of a crusader, stiff as a ramrod in the back and in one rheumatic leg, with his conquistador nose and his fierce mustache. It was difficult to believe that he had never heard a shot fired in anger. He, too, was alone. And Mr. Dean, Mrs. Montgomery exclaimed, surely he must be here. Why, he's always here if he's not filming somewhere abroad. I could see we had made a very bad mistake. Midnight Mass at St. Maurice was as social as a cocktail party. We would never have got away with it. At that moment, Richard Dean had appeared from the church, swollen and flushed with drink we just had time to notice that he had a pretty girl in tow before we escaped. Good God, Anna Louise said, a party of the toads. We couldn't have known they would be there. I don't believe in all this Christmas business. Only I want to believe. But the toads, why on earth do they go? I suppose it's a Christmas habit like our tree. I went last year alone. For no reason, I expect that they were all there. But I didn't have any of them in those days. In those days, it seems a years ago. I didn't even know that you existed. Lying happily in bed that night, in the short interval between love and sleep, we could talk of the toads humorously, as though they were a kind of comic chorus to our own story, which was the only important one. "'Do you suppose that the toads have souls?' I asked Anna Louise. "'Doesn't everyone have a soul? I mean, if you believe in souls.' "'That's the official doctrine, but mine is different. "'I think souls develop from an embryo, just as we do. "'Our embryo is not a human being yet. "'It still has something of a fish about it, "'and the embryo's soul isn't yet a soul. "'I doubt if small children have souls any more than dogs.' Perhaps that's why the Roman Catholic Church invented limbo. Have you a soul? I think I may have one. Shop-soiled, but still there. If souls exist, you certainly have one. Why? You've suffered. For your mother. Small children don't suffer. Or dogs, except for themselves. What about Mrs. Montgomery? Souls don't dye their hair a-blue. Can you imagine her even asking herself if she had a soul? And Monsieur Belmont? He hasn't had the time to develop one. Countries change their tax laws every budget, closing loopholes, and he has to think up new ways to evade them. A soul requires a private life. Belmont has no time for a private life. And the divisionaire? I'm, I'm not so sure about the divisionaire. He might just possibly have a soul. There's something unhappy about him. Is that always a sign? I think it is. And Mr. Kipps? I'm not sure about him either. There's a scene of disappointment about Mr. Kipps. He might be looking for something he has mislaid. Perhaps he's looking for his soul and not a dollar. Richard Dean? No, definitely not. No soul. I'm told he has copies of all his old films and his plays, plays them over every night to himself. "'He has no time even to read the books of the films. "'He's satisfied with himself. "'If you have a soul, you can't be satisfied. "'There was a long silence between us. "'We should, in the nature of things, have fallen asleep. "'But each was aware that the other was awake, "'thinking the same thought. "'My silly joke had turned serious. "'It was Anna Luise who spoke the thought aloud. "'And my father?' "'He has a soul, all right,' I said.' But I think it may be a damned one.